welcome back to the Cape Fear Rundown. From WHQR Public Media, I'm your host, Camille Mojica. This week, Rachel joins us to talk about the closing of a program at Mosley, and then Ben tells us about just what you can find in court documents. Stay tuned. Just a bit of an editor's note here, Rachel and I talk about families of mixed status in this segment. Some members of the community have referred to students at Mosley as illegal immigrants as well as members of their families. I'd like to clarify that as an NPR station, we follow guidelines set forth by the Associated Press, who have said people themselves cannot be illegal, but acts can. Therefore, mixed status families may have members that are residing in the U.S. unlawfully. But Rachel joins us now to talk about Mosley. Welcome back to the Keep Your Rundown. I'm here with Rachel Keith. Hi, Rachel. Hello. You're back on the show, and this week you and I are going to talk about the Career Readiness Academy over at Mosley. Can you just give us a quick update about what's happening with Mosley? So the district has announced that they will be closing the program. They have been very specific at saying that they're not closing the school because there's a pre-K program there okay, and another young adult program there that is going to continue but they are gonna close their high school program for next school year. Okay. And so what they're doing is their proposal is that they're gonna send them priority to whatever school they want to. Do they wanna go back to their traditional high school or do they wanna go to one of the district's specialty schools? And why this has kind of erupted in the public sphere is that people were caught off guard by this closure I was announcement. just about to say, was there yeah. any sort of conversation about this beforehand? No, there wasn't. Okay. Um, but the the Dr. Faust and the superintendent and Dr. Patrice Faison, who is the assistant superintendent, has said that the talks have been in, in the works at the district level and with the staff before they did the announcement. But when I contacted the board members about this when I got the letter that this would be closed mm-hmm. the following year, they didn't know about it. Okay. So Dr. Faust and Dr. Faison both cited some numbers about how expensive it is to run Mosley. Um, and basically were defending the decision to close the program because it was too expensive, right? Yes, that is one of their uh, arguments okay. um, in the community public-facing meetings that they've had. And even just at this board meeting this week, when we know that there's going to be a public hearing, and we'll talk about that, um, about this closure, he said that the board needed to figure it out because they have a $10 million hole in their budget. And I think this is one of the ways in which... He is helping, he is claiming that he can close this gap to close this program that is pretty costly for the amount of staff and kids that they have and that they can put these resources elsewhere. So just to quickly explain, this program is made up of a pretty diverse group of young adults, correct? It's it's a smaller class, but they're all from different places around the world, right? Yeah, a lot of um, first generation uh, mm-hmm. students are coming here. They're, they're one of the students at the public comment period 
um, a couple months ago said that he valued the diversity at the school. Mm. They have a lot of Hispanic students. They have students from the Caribbean. They have students from South America. Um, and they really value that diversity at that school. Now, at the latest public comment, um, there was definitely some concern about Mosley closing and how there was not really any conversation about it. But there's also been some misinformation about what the school actually is and what this program was. Um, some members of the audience were concerned about illegal immigrants going to this program. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, there was a lot of confusion. And if you look at the reporting, we'll put that in the links, is that Patrice Faison, a couple months ago, presented to the board this idea of a newcomer school okay. that could potentially be at Mosley. But at this point, she had never said that the program was closing and okay. that there might be. And again, they have been very clear on this, and I'll give this to them. The, the newcomer school is not set in stone. They said it's an idea, and they presented the newcomer school idea to the board. Okay. And they seemed interested because we do have a lot of uh, people that are coming to this area to work, their families, and they're coming from other countries, and there's a huge language barrier. So they wanted to potentially open up this newcomer school at Mosley to get these students acclimated to the United States and their families yeah. and to the American education system. And it is part of the Office of Civil Rights. You can't sequester students um, like this, but it, you can for a certain amount of time. It's been basically okay. under a year um, is my understanding. So this is not, this would just be like, hey, come to this program. We will get you acclimated. We will tell you how to understand the American education system, how to take tests, how mm -hmm. to, you know, do what you need to do. So, and then we'll send you back to a different school uh, so that you can, you know, be successful there. So but again, the community just made the direct line that yes. this was a thing it was a done deal it is a possibility and they were very upset about this but the interesting thing is, is that they're not understanding what the current population is at at Mosley and, and they are a lot of um, international uh, people who come from different countries who have traveled here to work and now there's kids need to go to school yeah and from emails that we were able to get a hold of some of these concerned individuals did mention that they did not like the idea of a newcomer school being for illegal immigrants um, and some of them actually signed emails, you know, a legal American taxpaying citizen so yes and we don't know I mean that we don't know they're they could be their families could be here illegally and that's probably what yeah. is the case so um yeah. from you know data coming out of the pew uh center for research and reporting from all different areas including npr nationally shows that there are a lot of what they called quote-unquote mixed status families which yes. basically means um children who are born here daca kids they are legally here um, but other members of their family may not be, which is what cons constitutes a mixed status family. Um, yeah, and to be honest, it's probably this mixed situation. It's yeah. legal and it potentially is people who have not have the paperwork to come to this country. But it's the reality of what, you know, our economic system demands and people are coming. And at the end of the day, 
the kids are the ones who are going to be affected by this decision. Um, at that public comment period a couple months back, students were crying. You know, students were crying. They were very sad that this program was going away. Um, many of them, you know, speaking English as a second language with, with accents were basically saying, this is my safe place. You know, that, that's is, right. This is my place where I feel safe. I've got friends here. The faculty is awesome and great, and it is, it's really hard to lose this program. So again, at the end of the day, the ones being affected by it are the children. Yeah, and it is interesting because, um, yes, they had a vocal um, student population that came to say that, you know, we really value this place, just like you said. But Patrice Faison has said that she sent out student surveys, and it sounds like some of them are ready to move on to different programs. Mm -hmm. So they're saying that... Yes, a lot of people are upset this was a great place to be, but some kids are ready to move out to other places in the district. And board member Hugh McManus has said openly that he's ready for them to go to different uh, schools because they can't offer the certificate, the technical certifications at that school. They don't offer AP, um, and yeah. some of the test scores are not the best. Potentially, could they? get better if they go to other schools so there's just been a lot of conversation about what to do and you're right I mean these students were very affected so were their parents mm -hmm. um, and again they felt safe they felt accepted it was a small I think that's what we're talking about in education a lot of families a lot of students want smaller groups they yes. don't want to get lost in a sea of of people and this was a place for them to get more individualized attention so you know because this blew up in the media and in the public eye because it was so out of left field there's going to be a public hearing about it next week which i'll be going to on tuesday yep um they just released what the format was going to be 19 minutes ago yes so, what, what is the format it's basically going to be a call to the audience. So Same form, same lottery. Yes, same lottery. So 20 people will be selected via the lottery, and there will be five open spots at the actual meeting. And they linked it straight to the call to the audience. So we can only assume that they are the same rules because they didn't release any other rules. Mm -hmm. So if they're going by these rules, that sounds like the board is just going to listen and they're not going to talk back to the people who are... Totally forgot about speaking. that. Oh. Th those are the rules, unless yes. they're, but we haven't gotten any information that there's a different format. Okay. So it will be like a call to the audience. And it does seem like this meeting is going to be pretty packed because yes. of how many people in the community are concerned and affected by this decision. Yeah, just at the last public call, they did have it via phone messages for the storm that we had this week. Uh, and I counted it up. It was just under half of the public speakers at that were concerned about Mosley and what's happening there. And again, there was misinformation too. I mean, uh, one of the Democratic people that are running for office, Cynthia Munez, um, she said, oh, you're voting tonight. But th they weren't voting. They were just trying to figure out how to best hear from the community. Okay. So will they vote eventually? We don't know about this process. But, I mean, the district seems pretty dead set on we've made this choice. It is happening. We're doing it for these reasons, which we've already discussed, and we're going to move on. But the board and some members, for example, like Melissa Mason is saying, we, we just need to hear from them because, you know, they, they didn't get their chance to yeah. kind of voice 
how this school, what the school means to them um, before they, you know, decided to close it. Well, I'm looking forward to attending this public hearing on Tuesday, and I'll be sure to link your previous reporting on all of this in our description. And Rachel, thank you for being on the show with me this week. Thank you. The True Colors double murder case has been on Ben's radar for years. He joins us now to walk us through what documents can show about legal proceedings. Welcome back to the Cape Fear Rundown. I'm here with Ben Shuckman. Hello, Ben. Hello, Cami. You're still doing Morning Edition. <laughs> I'm still doing Morning Edition. That is true. Our host, Ken Campbell, has COVID. Um, Nikolai Mather also came down with COVID. It's We got to keep ourselves safe around here. That's true. Okay, so this week I have you in to talk about something we've spoken about before, which is the True Colors double murder case. You, in front of you, is your <laughs> is your laptop. We were joking about killing a bunch of trees because you have how many pages of court documents? It's all told at over 600. Over 600. Okay. Which, which an attorney, any attorneys listening is going to be laughing at me because... <laughs> That's those are rookie numbers. My father is an attorney. I grew up surrounded by bankers boxes full of papers of thousands and thousands of pages. So I understand if you're an attorney and you're listening to this. Ha ha. Rookie numbers. (laughs) Okay, so you have over 600 pages of documents. What is going on with these papers? What's in them? So we're looking at everything that we could find in the public file. Okay. For the True Colors killings. And what we're what we're talking about is. A double murder back in uh, the summer of 2021. Okay. This happened at George Taylor III's house. He is the son of George Taylor, uh, founder of True Colors. Okay. And one of the victims was Corey Tyson, or Corey Tyson, um, who was a longtime gang member who had worked on and off for True Colors. Um, and there was also a woman who was murdered as well, um, although... The case seems to focus on the killing of Corey, and the woman seems to have been unfortunately killed. Okay. She doesn't seem to be the target of the killing, although tragically she is, you know, she's dead now. Yes. Okay, so in these court documents, and since they're in the public, we're able to find out a lot of details about the case, right? Yeah, I mean, there's always, the prosecution um, does keep some stuff pretty close to its uh, chest. The actual criminal investigation mm. is not public. So there's a limit to what we can know. Okay. But by going through court findings and, and court records, you can learn quite a bit about both what happened, what we know has happened, and you know what the defense and the prosecution are doing to get ready for a potential trial. Okay. So, yeah, and the reason we've been looking at this for two and a half years now, coming up on three years, mm-hmm. it'll be three years in July, is that this is a very high-profile case, but it just brings in like a, it's like a Venn diagram of a lot of things that we're interested. Because at Public Radio, we don't cover a lot of crime. Yes, that's true. As like a, here are the suspects. <laughs> but it's been a good opportunity because it's, it's been going on for so long and it's, it's such a complicated case to really get into the mechanics of how criminal justice works. I, I never want to lose sight of the fact that, that Cordrys Tyson and Brianna Emily Williams are dead. Yeah. So this is not just an academic exercise. And their families want to know who killed them. So that's important. So I never want people to think that we're being flip or that we're just being, yeah. you know, weirdly abstract about this. That is important. And so um, 
And again, that's also the reason that we try to give the defense a lot of credence. Okay. Because it's not about just criticizing or throwing rocks at law enforcement or criticizing the district attorney's office. If and, and all three of the men, and we'll get into that in a minute, who are accused of this murder claim that they are innocent. Okay. And so one of the things I hear all the time is that it is incredibly important, obviously, to not put an innocent person in prison. Yeah. And these people are facing um, – District Attorney Ben David chose not to make this a capital murder case. Okay. But they could be facing their life in prison. So it's obviously, for lots of reasons, important not to put an innocent person in prison. But if you put an innocent person in prison, that means a guilty person is still out there. Yes. And it means that the family didn't really get justice and that there's a dangerous killer still out there. Okay. Or killers. Or killers. Or killers. Okay, quick question. Yeah. When this first happened in the summer of 2021, before these 600-plus pages of, of documents have come out, was it super clear what happened in the media? Was it difficult to report on it? What what happened? It was incredibly confusing. Okay. There were a number of issues that made things just really weird. Um, George Taylor III lives in a nearly half-million-dollar house mm. in a nice neighborhood in Porter's Neck where we don't see gang violence. Okay. Um which freaked a lot of the neighbors out mm-hmm. um, and skewed this story in a weird way. It got more eyeballs than, you know, equally violent killings in lower income neighborhoods. It sort of felt unfair. Okay. You yeah. Know, like, why don't you care when the victims are, you know, in poor neighborhoods? Totally valid question. Yes. Yeah, so kind of like how when shootings moved closer into downtown. Yep. As well as what happened at New Hanover High. So that... But because of that, there was a lot of interest. So we did actually get a lot of information out. So if you go back to the reporting, you actually see more information than you would for, say, a shooting that took place on Nixon Street or okay. on Kenner Street. Interesting. Um, you know, so it it, it was interesting because George Taylor III was at the house at the time. Um, he was found, I believe, with two weapons in a bathroom. Um, he did not call nine one one. There was a th- there was a second woman at the house. Um, who uh, was badly wounded but managed to call 911. Okay. And I've listened to that um, 911 call. call. It is, it's disturbing because she thinks she's going to die. Um, so we knew that, you know, we knew it didn't really seem like a robbery. Okay. It didn't have, you know, I, I was there pretty early on the scene. There were other reporters there. Talked to some cops. Talked to some CSI people. It didn't look like a robbery gone wrong. Okay. It looked like this was an intentional killing of Corey Tyson. Hmm. Okay. Um, and so that's what we that's what we kind of knew in the days afterwards. Okay. So now tell us about the three people that are currently suspects in this double murder case. Okay. So there's Dyrell Green, uh, Raquel Adams, and Amante Bell. Okay. Um, who, from talking to some people, grew up on the the north side of Wilmington, the north side or the east side of Wilmington. Uh, they knew each other. Um, according to law enforcement, they are all members of um, a gang. Okay. That was a rival gang to Corey's gang. Interesting. Okay. Corey was actually in a bunch of different gangs. Um, <laughs> but it was one of the rival ones. But it kind of boils down to along Blood Crips lines. Corey was the head of the 720 Folk Nation, uh, Gangster Disciples, um, which is opposed to the, the Bloods. Okay. And so the argument was that these were members of the Blood Gang. These three men, members um, of the Blood Gang had done this as sort of a gangland hit. Okay. Uh, they deny that. Um, 
and they're saying that they're innocent. They're saying they're innocent. We've spoken at length with Diego Green's father, Ronald Canty. Hmm, okay. um, and again, he's a father defending his son. So, yes, you have to take it with a grain of salt. But he was explicit that his son was not a gang member um, and that his son had trouble with the law in the past and had always owned up to it. Okay. Um, he'd had a number of interactions with the Wilmington Police Department. Um, again, a- according to people I've talked to at the police department, it, this does seem to pan out. They're not allowed to talk on the record about some of this stuff. Of course. But they confirmed, yeah, we wanted Tyrell Green for a number of different charges. We called Ronald. Ronald brought his son in. Interesting. You know, and they had, yeah, it's an unfortunate situation, right? But, like, there was some rapport and mutual yeah. trust between the family and law enforcement. Okay. And one of the things uh, Dyrell Green's father was so upset about was that they did not call him. Um, this was the sheriff's office that did the arrest because it took place outside of the city limits. Okay. Um, the sheriff's office never contacted him and said, hey, we need to talk to you. Um, Ronald told me his son was actually wanted for a murder in the past. Really? Yeah, and he was, um, you know, he was cleared. It was, I don't think he was even ever charged. Okay. So this just felt like it, it happened out of the blue. Okay. Um. So all th- and the other thing to know is that these are these three young men um, have been in the New Hanover County Detention Center since August of 2021. They've been he- there this whole time. The entire time. And Dyrell Green, for reasons that we will probably never really get 100% clarity on, um, has been in solitary a lot of the time. Um, he had a violent interaction with a detention officer. His family claims the officer started it. Law enforcement obviously claims that Daryl started it. Um, he was also involved in an altercation recently where, according to the sheriff's office, uh, he jammed the cell door with a towel. Okay. And was able to get out of his cell and attack someone. Huh. Um, his family and, and people who know him suggested that he was set up to be jumped. Okay. so uh, But just to make it clear that, like, whatever the truth is in there somewhere, this is not a good time. Yes. Okay. So, quick question. How are we able to know that he was in solitary this whole time, or most of the time? So, that was confirmed both by the uh, detention center and by his family. Okay. Um, and it shows up in court filings. Oh, so that's one of the things that we can find in court. Yeah. So, one of the things, so when we when we spoke about this last year, we were talking about allegations that one of the lead detectives had, and we're just going to say it, the, the family puts it very bluntly. They say that this detective lied to the grand jury. The defense attorneys are a bit more circumspect, and though they said, like, provided re- repeated erroneous information. Yeah. <laughs> um, but one of the things they're saying is that we need to dismiss this case if it's based on bad info because these young men have been under the onerous conditions of jail for so long. Okay. Yeah. Yes. And we've talked about the weird murkiness of grand juries before. Yeah. Um, and so what we're talking about this time is – Going through all three files for uh, for Dyrell, Raquel, and Amante. Okay. Um, it looks like, and again, this is according to the defense, and it would be really wild if they fabricated this. But again, we we don't can't confirm this because the DA's office doesn't talk about ongoing ongoing stuff. Okay. Um, but it appears that each of these young men were offered kind of a prisoner's dilemma style plea bargain deal. Quick, can you describe what that is? Yes. Okay. Prisoner's Dilemma? So you and I are a bank robbery team. Okay. Cammy Mohiga, Ben Shockman, bank robbers. 
and we rob a bank and we both get arrested and the police put us in separate rooms. Oh. And if we both say nothing, right? There's no fingerprints. We're very good bank robbers, by the way. In okay. This, in this hypothetical, we're, <laughs> we're great. Um, you know, we had the body suits on, so it's like no hair, no fingerprints, no Nothing. surveillance camera. Um, just morph suits. Just morph suits. And uh, if both of us um, say nothing, they'll probably only get us on some minor stuff, right? So we might both we might both do a couple of years. Okay. We are going to prison, but only for a couple of years. Okay. Now, what if one of us says something? If one of us says something, right? If one of us cops to it or blames the other one. Um, then if I, if I rat you out, but you say nothing, right? Okay. You go to prison and I get a deal. Really? And if you rat me out and I say nothing, you get a deal. And if we both rat each other out, well, then we're both, it's both not good. Huh? Right? Wow. So there's many variations on this, but that's kind of the prisoner's dilemma. Okay, so they have all been offered a prisoner's dilemma type plea. Basically saying, we're coming to you, we're offering you a deal. Um, if you don't take it, we're going to go on to the next person. Ah. Uh, yes. Okay, yes. I see. That's what the defense is saying. That's what the defense is saying. And they have all, again, according to the defense, um, turned down this deal. Okay, so they're saying nothing, yeah. basically. Now, I've heard, again, this is secondhand from family members that – this has actually happened more than once, and that the plea deal actually got better, hmm. um, so that it was for less time the second time. I have no evidence for that. Okay. That is a thing I've heard on the street a lot. Okay. Um, and so there's a lot of reasons that the prosecution would offer a plea deal. Um, 40 years might be what they think a murder sentence might actually come out to. Mm-hmm. Um, once you do, there's a lot of charges here. You know, there's murder, conspiracy to commit murder. And there's a laundry list of, of other stuff. Yeah. And so they might think, well, this is really just about the murder. Okay, not all the other stuff. Not all the other stuff. Um, so let's just boil it down to what we think justice is, cut right to that, and offer that as a plea deal. Oh, I see. Yeah, so it saves a ton of time and energy for the prosecutor's office. To a certain extent, it gets it over with. Mm-hmm. For, you know, instead of waiting another year in the detention center, wow. you just go ahead and go to prison and, and get acclimated to that. For the family, it would put an end to two and a half years of waiting. The families, plural. That's um, true. Of, of just being in limbo and not having any sense of closure on the murder of their children, their you know, brothers and cousins. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, so there are, you know, good arguments to be made for plea deals. Um, people take plea deals when they're not guilty. It's an, it's an unfortunate fact of life. If you don't think your defense case is good enough, mm. people take plea deals. They also take Alford pleas, or um, I, I will butcher the Latin here, nolo contende okay. deals. Uh, Alford plea actually comes from North Carolina. It's a kind of, it's a, it's a variation on that. It basically says, I'm saying that I am innocent, but that I acknowledge you've got the goods to put me away. Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, so... Sometimes that's done for like a civil case because you technically didn't admit guilt, okay. so they can't use it against you. And sometimes it's just done because you know, like you don't want to admit that you did something you didn't do. Yeah, you know, it's like the crucible. You know, <laughs> but it's my name. Yes. Yeah, uh, which I always thought was silly. I'm like, just sign the thing and don't get hanged. <laughs> <laughs> but in any case, 
Um, so it looks like they were all offered plea deals and they didn't take them, which I think is very interesting um, because the prosecution has said in court, I've been in court when they said this, that they have an incredibly strong case. The prosecution says that? Yes. Okay. Now, that said, court records and conversations I've heard in court and just the word on the street is that officially um, there is no murder weapon, um, no blood from the alleged killers. You know, sometimes uh, a gun slide will come back and cut your hand or you'll be cut in a scuffle or broken glass. No blood evidence of the offenders, no hair, no DNA. Um, There is apparently a witness of someone who saw a car that's similar to one that one of the men own. Okay. But there's not like, you know, crystal clear camera footage. This is the license plate, here's the car. Yeah. Okay. And no witnesses. The only survivor besides George Taylor III, um, this young woman uh, didn't see who shot them. Hmm. Okay. But in spite of that, the prosecution has been emphatic that they have uh, an excellent case. Um, And these court records lay out a lot of how that case came about. A lot of it has to do with cell phones and social media. Mm. Okay. Um, So, And that's what I'm going through now and sort of trying to see what I can understand about what the prosecution's case is. Okay. And I want to put a sort of blanket over all of this to say this is not to try the case on my own here at HQR. Armchair lawyering. Armchair lawyering, both sides weirdly. Yeah. You know, um, but I think it would be good for the public to have some document of where the case is at before this goes to trial. And if it never goes to trial, then to have some document of like, well, here's what we knew, you know? Yeah. Because it's possible that this does that this does end in, in a plea deal. And then we just kind of never know. Hmm. Um, so that's kind of where we're at. But this is all buried in a mountain of documents that I have been through once and <laughs> I need to go through again with a finer tooth comb and kind of pull out what's relevant um, and make sure that we're explaining it because some of the stuff is like agreed upon fact and some of it is allegation. Yeah. So... This is a this is probably the one of the most complicated cases I've looked at because it's three people um, being it's tried, two people were killed, so many things, years of investigation, um, lyrics, songs, all these things. Yeah, at one point we talked about this last time. Yep. They they roped in a plea deal that someone else had. Um, I have no idea how that factors in. I don't know if I'll be <laughs> able to discover that. But there's a lot. There's a lot going on here. Ben Shockman sitting in a coffee shop reading through 600 pages of documents. If you see me downtown with just an absolute monster stack for a non-lawyer. That is what is happening. No two things that like I do love this job, including this part of it. Yeah. And that I will recycle this stuff. Okay. It is good to know that. Ben, thank you for being with me in the studio this week. Happy to do it. Thank you so much for listening to the Cape Fear Rundown. Check out our show notes for relevant links and titles to the music we use this week. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or just general feedback, feel free to get in touch. You can shoot me an email at cmojica, that's M-O-J-I-C-A, at whqr.org, or you can find me on X at Cami Reports. I'd love to hear from you. I'm your host, Camille Mojica, and I'll see you next week.